0: Welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. For this first several episodes, the first season, as I like to think of it, we're going to be talking about nationalism. And in the last episode, we talked about the Roman Empire at its height meeting up against a nationalist rebellion. And needless to say, it did not go well for the rebels. Uh, in the case of the first Jewish-Roman War, the Roman Empire was more or less at its height. Uh, when you're talking about the Roman Empire as a military superpower, uh, its highest point is uh, the mid-first to late-second century. And the first Roman-Jewish War came pretty much at the beginning of that period. Today, we're going to be talking about that same Roman Empire after it's taken a little bit of abuse, after it has, to some extent, deteriorated. And it is now faced with a tribal confederation on its borders with people who would like very much to migrate into the Roman Empire and maybe just take a piece of it, thank you very much. Now, in and of itself, this was not unique in Roman history, right? Uh, the Romans famously fought the Gauls in modern-day France. Julius Caesar cleaned them up, no problem. And they also famously fought against Germanic tribes many times. And never before had this been a mortal threat to the empire. Uh, the barbarians might make an incursion here or there, but for the most part, the the national security of the Roman state, for lack of a better term, was not terribly threatened uh, for this whole stretch, uh, starting uh, really, really in, in around the first century BC, with uh, Julius Caesar's complete subjugation of the Gauls, and all the way into the time period we're going to be talking about, which is the middle of the 4th century. Now, the empire is still officially in place. Uh, The borders are more or less the same as they were in the 1st century. A few minor differences that aren't really even important enough to talk about. Uh, But the underlying infrastructure of the Roman state is severely weakened. Now, I said earlier that the height of the Roman Empire uh, took place from roughly the middle of the first century to the end of the second century. And uh, the reason for that is an event called the crisis of the third century. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, A person could literally spend hours and hours and hours talking about nothing but the crisis of the third century. Suffice it to say, there was a series of civil wars. Those civil wars were punctuated by attempted barbarian invasions and also by a couple of small plagues. So yeah, not the best century for Rome. And at several points uh, during that time period, there were either uh, multiple contenders Uh, for the uh, position of emperor in other words uh depending on who you ask you may have three or even four emperors simultaneously uh, duking it out for the top spot at other times you have uh, the empire divided in various fashions into two three or even four parts uh and those were administrative divisions. Those were the, the good parts of the third century uh, was when the, the empire was divided because at least it was functioning. People weren't going to war with each other. People weren't dying trying to determine who the emperor was. The emperors were more or less sharing their positions and Here's one of the things about Roman history that's hard to talk about is uh, the fact that they didn't really have a written constitution. Uh, Everything was more or less done on the basis of tradition, so it wasn't as if the Senate sat down one day and said, well, this is how we're going to divide the empire, and it's going to be this way forever, uh, or for the foreseeable future. No, the emperors just did it, and uh, what one emperor decided to do, the next emperor could undo. Now, at the end of the crisis of the 3rd century, things had more or less settled down. Uh, You didn't have plagues coming through. You had a series of stable emperors uh, in the early 4th century. Uh, around, I want to say 326, might be 327. My dates might be off, my goodness. Uh, but you had the the Emperor Constantine uh, taking complete control of the empire, right, winning the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And at that point, Christianity became an official religion of the Roman Empire, not the official religion, but an official religion, and you had emperors from that point forth going back and forth and changing various policies around religion. Um, and for the most part, from there on out, you saw a divided empire. One emperor in the east, one in the west. Again, this was nothing unusual at this time. If you were a Roman living in the middle of the 4th century, You might actually think things were pretty good. I mean, my goodness, they're certainly better than they were back during the crisis of the third century. Yeah, the empire is divided in half, but that's just an administrative thing, right? There's still trade throughout the entire Mediterranean. Both sides of the empire help each other with defense. Uh, Everything's kosher, at least so it would seem until the year 364 A.D., when our story begins. Now, in 364, the empire is actually ruled by one man, and that man is the Emperor Jovian. Now, he'd just become emperor the year before in June of 363, and he'd found the empire in the middle of a war with the Sassanid Persian Empire. So he quickly went to Anatolia and got together with his top generals and Uh, some peace envoys from the Persian Empire, and got together the groundworks of a preliminary peace deal. Unfortunately, before he could conclude the peace deal, in February of 364, he died mysteriously in his sleep. And that's where we start. See, here are Jovian's top generals. In the middle of concluding a peace deal and the emperor just up and dies without leaving an heir. So they did what generals usually did in the Roman Empire at this time and tried to find a replacement as quickly as possible. This was key. Uh, The longer they took to find a replacement, the more likely it was that some other generals somewhere else in the empire would appoint their own emperor and then a civil war would start. So Jovian's generals go through a few different candidates. They ask a couple of guys who aren't really interested, and they settle on a relatively little-known gentleman by the name of Valentinian. Uh, Valentinian uh, had been a military commander uh, and been successful, uh, but then he had uh, lost a battle, And even though it had been his commanding officer's fault, uh, Valentinian took the fall in order to allow him to save face. Uh, Basically, Valentinian backed his way into the emperorship. He just happened to be in the area. He just happened to be qualified enough. And Jovian's generals needed a butt on the throne ASAP to prevent a civil war. So Valentinian became emperor before the month of February was even out. Uh, Now, at this point, remember, uh, the empire has just more or less made peace with the Persian empire. And in the meantime, they're hearing rumblings of barbarian activity near Gaul, uh, modern-day France. Uh, If you look at a map from Anatolia, that's uh, the southern half of modern-day Turkey, to France, that's a long way. Valentinian and the legions have to get going. Uh, And Valentinian, while the generals trust him to lead uh, the empire, they don't trust him to do it alone. Uh, They want this to be a shared administration. So Valentinian appoints his brother Valens as co-emperor for the eastern half of the empire. Now, while Valentinian may not be the most spectacular individual for the job of emperor. He's at least qualified for it. Valens, on the other hand, has no qualifications. He's never been in the military. He has never served in any type of civil position in the empire. He's just a guy. And all of a sudden, he's in charge of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. On the face of it, This is troubling, but it shouldn't be too bad, right? I mean, Jovian had just gotten together the basis of a peace deal. All Valens has to do is make peace. So once Valens has been appointed co emperor, Valentinian takes off with his legions to go take care of that problem with the Gauls. And while he's gone, Uh, Almost immediately, a military officer named Procopius leads a rebellion. Now, this isn't terribly unusual, particularly in the late empire. Uh, You often see new emperors uh, get challenged. And this is uh, certainly the case here, uh, where Valens is weak, has no experience, and this Procopius guy thinks he can handle Valens. Uh, On the other hand, Uh, While this represents a crisis, it's also an opportunity for Valens to prove himself. Uh, If he can put down this rebellion quickly and effectively, uh, he may not have to deal with any more challengers in the future. And uh, he responded decisively. Here's what early church historian Sozeman had to say about Valens' response in his book, Ecclesiastical History. The latter quitted Syria, and met Procopius near Nacalia, a city of Phrygia, and captured him alive through the treachery of Agilonius and Gomarius, two of his generals. Valens put them all to a cruel death, and although he had sworn to show favor to the two generals, he caused them to be sawn asunder. He commanded Procopius to be fastened by the legs to two trees which had been bent together by the application of a great force. So that on the sudden removal of the force, when the trees were left to resume their natural position, the victim was torn in twain. Now, if you're a new emperor and people are whispering behind your back that you're too weak for the job, too inexperienced and soft, maybe this sort of harsh response is just what's required to make people take you seriously and follow your leadership. So, relatively quickly, Valens developed a reputation both for being decisive and for being a harsh administrator of justice. Throughout his reign, he was also known for executing non-Aryan Christian clergy. Now, this is another thing that we should just sort of discuss before we start, is that at this time, Christianity was divided into two factions. Uh, The Arian Christians, uh, so-called because they followed the teachings of a person named Arius, and the Nicene Christians, who followed the teachings of the Nicene Creed. Uh, At this time, most of the western half of the empire... Uh, consisted of Nicene Christians. Most of the eastern half uh, was divided, and then uh, Christianity had already spread outside the empire. So there were a lot of surrounding barbarian groups, so-called barbarian groups. The Romans would have called them barbarians. Uh, We today might call them independent kingdoms, but these surrounding areas Uh, were also being Christianized at this time, and that's where you saw the bulk of the Aryan Christians. And Valens is very much in their corner. So Valens is emperor for 10 years, and at that point he suffers a personal tragedy. His brother Valentinian, the emperor in the west, dies. Now, this doesn't destabilize the Empire, because Valentinian had a plan. See, he had a son named Gratian, and Gratian is now the Emperor in the West. And, from what we can tell, Gratian looked up to his uncle Valens, and the two got along reasonably well. That said, there was still an undercurrent of rivalry that's understandable given the circumstances. Now, I was just talking about these surrounding uh, barbarian tribes, these people who lived in the buffer zone around the empire. Now, these people in the areas immediately around the Roman Empire weren't roving nomads. These were mostly settled peoples who had uh, villages and economies and were trading partners with the Roman Empire. So... Why was there suddenly trouble with barbarians in the middle of the 4th century? Well, go ahead and get out your map, because we're going to have to talk about yet another group of people called the Huns. See, in ancient times, there were basically three civilized parts of the Old World. Now, I'm using massive air quotes around the word civilized, but areas where there was something you would recognize as uh, a modern economy, rule of law, that sort of thing. Uh, You had the civilizations around the Mediterranean. You had the civilizations uh, in the Indus Valley and uh, other areas of the Indian subcontinent. And then you had the Chinese civilization, uh, which started in the Yellow River Valley. Over in China, uh, between all of these civilizations, these hotspots of human activity, there were these large steps, uh, well, there still are these large steppes in Central Asia, these wide open areas that aren't very good for farming, uh, they're, they're more or less grazing land, and in ancient times they were full of nomadic horse peoples. Uh, And from time to time, one or the other of these horse peoples decides to come out of the steppes and causes trouble for one of these civilized societies. Uh, You saw it in ancient times with the Parthians. Uh, A few hundred years after the story we're talking about now, uh, the Mongols will famously invade again out of these steppes. Uh, And at this time, there is a people on the steppes called the Huns. Now, their origin is controversial. They're often associated with some people called the Zhongnu, some people who lived in what's now Mongolia uh, in the uh, last couple of centuries of the B.C. era into the Uh, 1st century AD. And then in 89 AD, the Han Dynasty dealt them a crushing military defeat, and they collapsed in a series of civil wars, and they sort of disappear from Chinese history off into the steppes. Uh, Now, the theory is that these people over the next few hundred years migrated across Asia and ended up in the area around modern day Kazakhstan and then started moving into the Caucasus, that area in modern day Georgia. Um, And when that happened, they started pressing on these settled peoples who lived right outside the Roman empire. Uh, Now I should point out that this Mongolian origin for the Huns is like I said, controversial May or may not be the case, but either way, uh, starting in the middle of the fourth century, you do have these people called the Huns coming out of the Eurasian steppes into the Caucasus, and the first people they run into uh, are another group of nomads called Alan's. They live in what's now the the mountainous area west of. in the in the western part of Iran, and they start pushing into the Persian Empire, and most of them end up becoming assimilated into either the Persian or the Roman Empire or the Hunnic tribes. They basically work as mercenaries for the highest bidder, and those people will appear throughout our story on all sides. Uh, and then as they're moving again into the Caucasus, uh, the Huns start pushing into these people called the Goths, And the Goths control a large area in uh, what's now uh, Eastern Europe uh, from the Caucasus over to uh, roughly modern-day Poland and down to the northern part of the Balkans, uh, roughly modern-day Austria, uh, right along the Danube River, which is the, uh, or was, I should say at the time, the northern frontier of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, when I say the Goths controlled this area, I don't mean that they had some kind of modern country or even a kingdom of any kind. Uh, They were a tribal people. They had various clans ruled by various chiefs. Sometimes these clans went to war with each other. And the Huns, being an opportunistic people, uh, were able to sell themselves on both sides of various clan disputes. Uh, the Goths, as is typical for this part of the world, fought mostly on foot. So the Hunnic style of fighting, this, this horse archery, was, was a fantastic complement uh, because you had a hard-hitting infantry and then these uh, these horse archers who could perform hit-and-run attacks on your enemy to harass them. And the Huns, as a result, didn't so much invade the Goths as start bleeding into them and using divide-and-conquer tactics to play them off one another. Uh, and what ends up happening is there are tribes on the losing sides of these disputes who have nowhere to turn but towards the relatively more peaceful realm of the Roman Empire. Now, we aren't going to see any Huns ourselves for quite some time, but right here from the beginning, they're already affecting our story. They're sort of like the White Walkers. They're... They're on the way. They're not here yet, but winter is coming. And in 376 AD, the first snowflakes would start to fall. In his book, How Rome Fell, historian Adrian Goldsworthy says, In 376, a large group of Goths massed on the far bank of the Danube. This was not a raiding party but an entire people on the move, their women and children riding in wagons. They were called the Tervingi, although they were not all of the people who called themselves by that name. There was another major group of Tervingi, and altogether at least half a dozen distinct groups of Goths are known from our sources. More may well have existed, but are simply not recorded. The Goths, just like the Alemanni, Franks, and others, remained a deeply divided people, split into tribes and other groups, loyal to many different kings, chieftains, and magistrates. In the 5th century, kingdoms were carved out from Roman territory by the Ostrogoths and Visigoths. There is no evidence that these groups already existed in Valen's day under these or any other names. Although they figure in older accounts of the 370s, the Visigoths and Ostrogoths did not come into being for another generation. The Tervingi sent envoys on ahead, seeking permission from Valens to cross into the empire. They asked to be settled on land, preferably in Thrace, and promised in return to provide soldiers for his army. Again, this was not unprecedented. Entire groups of barbarians had been relocated in the Roman Empire in the past. Uh, So it was not unusual for a barbarian leader to make this kind of request. Now, Valens did take over a month to reply just because of the distance uh, between the Danube from Frontier and his location down in Anatolia. Uh, And there's a little bit of tension in the air. Uh, You see Valens has a grudge against the Goths because 3,000 Gothic mercenaries had worked for Procopius when he first became emperor, and Procopius rebelled against him. Uh, But surprisingly, Valens does agree to a meeting with the Gothic leader, a chief named Fritigern, and Valens also wants the Tervingi to be settled in Thrace, just like Fritigern does. And it seems to be that this region was dealing with some population issues. There'd been a lot of wars going on between the Romans and the Persians over the past century or so, so the area was a little bit depopulated. It makes sense that Valens might want to settle some people here, and so much the better if some of them could fight. I should point out that Fritigern is not like some king of the Goths. He's just another chief. But for reasons we're not quite clear on, the other chiefs uh, agreed that he should be their lead negotiator. Now, information on Fritigern's past is a little bit hazy. We have a few different conflicting histories. What we can say for sure is that he had been involved in one of these tribal civil wars uh, between two different groups of Turvingi. Uh, what we can't say is whether or not he won. Uh, He might have lost, in which case it makes sense that he shows up on the border here with Rome, being, uh, again, one of those people on the losing side of one of those tribal civil wars. Uh, But other sources say that he won, and that he won with help from the Romans. Now, if that's true, that also makes sense, uh, because if Valens had helped him out previously in a uh, Tervingi civil war, Well, then, they had a previous working relationship. Uh, Not only that, but according to the story, Fritigern had converted to Arian Christianity as a condition of receiving Roman help. So, once again, he's worked with Valens before, they share the same religion, it makes sense that he gets chosen as the lead negotiator. And as I mentioned, the Roman Empire did have a history of settling barbarians within the empire under certain conditions. That said, there were a couple of golden rules that the empire would always follow when this was done. One of these was that the barbarians were typically dispersed throughout the empire. Uh, the idea was that this would, uh, encourage them to assimilate into Roman society instead of maintaining their own tribal identity in in an enclave within the empire. So right here, uh, what's being proposed, this move to Thrace, violates the golden rule of Roman immigration. Uh, That said, it did follow most of the other rules. For instance, uh, some of the barbarians, in this case the young men of fighting age, would be conscripted into the army. And as an added condition, Valens demands that the Tervingi convert to Aryan Christianity, which shouldn't be a big deal since Fritigern is already an Aryan Christian. Uh, Now, historically, this sort of immigration had always been a good deal, both for the empire and for the barbarians. Uh, On the one hand, the empire received an influx of uh, new recruits for the military. They could also settle people. In areas where uh, manpower was needed for various projects, it was a good thing. And, of course, it was useful for the barbarians, too, because, hey, life in the Roman Empire is good. So Valens and Fritigern sit down, and they agree that the Turvingi will be allowed to enter the empire and settle in Thrace under certain conditions, right? As we already said, the young men will serve in the military, Um. In addition, all the Tervingi must cross disarmed. They have to give up their weapons before they can cross the Danube River and enter the Roman Empire. Uh, In return for this, the Romans will agree to feed them until they can be settled. This is a lot of people, and uh, obviously uh, they're not on a farm right now. They, They need food to come from somewhere. And the other terms of the treaty are unclear. We know there are some, but we don't have the original treaty. We just have historical records that say, and there were other conditions. As Valens and Fritigern are sitting around hammering out this treaty, another group of Goths shows up at the Danube asking for entry into the Roman Empire. This group is called the Gruthungi. Now. While Valens is more than happy to let some Goths enter the empire, he's not willing to let the entire Gothic nation resettle in Rome all at the same time, so he refuses the Gruthungi request and tells them to stay on the other side of the Danube in Gothic lands. With negotiations complete, Valens sets off on campaign against the Persians in the spring of 377, for those of you keeping track at home, this is the second war against the Persians in 11 years, but that's more or less par for the course throughout Roman history. And while Valens is gone, fighting the Persians, he appoints a general named Lupicinus to manage the distribution of food to all these hungry Turvingi who were coming across the Danube into the empire. Now, we don't know much about Lupicinus other than what contemporary Roman historian Ammianus says about him. And Ammianus says that Lupicinus is a greedy and corrupt man who takes bribes from everybody. As a matter of fact, as we'll see, he pretty much rigs everything so that you have to bribe him in order to live. Now, not everything that happened is Lupicinus' fault. As soon as the first Tervingi start moving across the Danube, it becomes abundantly clear that the Roman Empire is not ready for this influx. When the Tervingi start to cross, there are not enough ships in the local Roman flotilla to handle the number of people coming across the river. This is a local fleet made to shuttle a few troops and messengers across the river, a few times a day, it's not the kind of fleet you need to move tens of thousands of people in a short period of time. So what ends up happening is that rather than wait their turn, many of the Turvingi make makeshift rafts to cross the river, and uh, some even try to swim. And many of them drown just making this trip across the river. Now, once they get into the Empire, their troubles aren't done. There's not enough food. Normally, if the Romans were going to feed this many people, say if they were going to have you know, three, four legions in the province uh, to go on a military campaign, it would take a period of a few years to get enough grain moved into the area to supply all those people. And the local officials had had only a few months to prepare for this influx. And then, of course, you had corruption among local officials, uh, people skimming grain off the top, taking bribes, that sort of thing. And none of that made Lupusinus' job any easier. But then he went and took things a little bit further. For one thing, uh, he's allowing many Turvingi to keep their weapons. As long as they're willing to bribe Lupusenus' officers, they can come across the river fully armed and not have to deal with any trouble from the legions. And then, even worse, Lupusenus' officers are taking bribes for food. Uh, In order to feed their families, some Tervingi women are resorting to prostitution. Some families even have to trade their children. Uh, Adrian Goldsworthy says that the going rate was one child for one dog. Uh, they wanted those dogs to eat. Uh, so you can see things were pretty bad. And uh, according to Goldsworthy, Lupusinus actually has his men gathering up dogs from the surrounding area just to collect these uh, Turvingi children so he can sell them into slavery. This is uh, to put it generously quite the corrupt official uh, that Fritigern and his poor Turvingi people now have to deal with, but even under these horrible conditions, eventually Lupicinus and his border troops begin moving south, escorting Fritigern and his Goths to their new promised land in Thrace as they do this though they're leaving the border very lightly defended along the danube river uh, for those of you who aren't quite familiar with the area thrace is an area in the balkans that's sort of north of constantinople and south of austria uh, and that's where the turvingi are being settled so to go there Lupusinus is pulling most of his men away from the border, and keep in mind this is an area that already doesn't have a lot of troops in it because Valens is off on campaign. And what this means is that at this undefended border, a bunch of those Gruthungi, those other Goths who were denied entry, start coming across on their own and making their way into the Empire. During this march south, Lupicinus decides to host Fritigern and another Turvingi chief named Alavivus at a banquet. There are also some other unnamed chiefs, some honor guards. It seems to be a whole lot of people at this party. And they're inside a city along the way, and there's a bunch of Goths outside the city. It's only their chiefs and the honor guards who are allowed inside. And the Goths outside the city, as we already know, are hungry. So a few of the Tervingi go to the Roman guards and ask them to enter the city just to get a few provisions. The Romans say no and a scuffle breaks out. The scuffle escalates into general fighting and both some Romans and some Goths are killed. And as the fighting's going on, a bunch of Gothic warriors from the camps start swarming the gates to see what's happening. Now, keep in mind, these guys are armed because the Romans took bribes and let them keep their weapons. So the Roman guards at the gates are all killed and looted by angry Goths. Inside the city, Lupicinus finds out about this and orders Fritigern and Alavivus's guards killed, along with the honor guards of the rest of the chieftains. Basically, he wants to make them into hostages. Now, most of the guards were killed, but Fritigern is able to save his own guards by talking to Lupicinus and telling him that only he, Fritigern, can talk down the Goths and make them stop rioting. So, Fritigern and his guards leave the city, and he promptly musters all the local Gothic troops. Lupicinus leads the Roman garrison out to attack them to try and drive them away before they can fully organize, but his attack fails horribly. Most of the Roman garrison is wiped out and very few survive. Uh, Lupicinus is one of the few survivors. It's said that he was also one of the first people to run from the battle. Uh, his fate is unknown after this point. We also don't know what happened to Alavibus or any of the other Gothic chiefs. All we know is that now Fritigern is at the head of a Gothic army inside Roman territory and is effectively at war with the empire. Other Goths flock to Fritigern, right? Remember all those people coming across the border? Well, they hear that there's a Gothic chief leading a rebellion. They come and join him. Uh, Fritigern's new army attacks and uh, sacks a Roman legionary uh, weapons factory, and they end up seizing a bunch of the weapons. So now not only uh, does Fritigern have an army, but they're relatively well-armed. They've got the same swords and shields and uh, javelins that the Romans are using at this time. Uh, Not all of them, right? They obviously didn't have enough Uh, gear for everybody, but this is not just your ordinary, uh, what you might call, barbarian rabble. Now, that said, one thing they don't have is any kind of siege equipment. Uh, Fritigern makes the mistake of leading his people to attack the city of Adrianople, and a bunch of people die. They don't even make a dent in the wall, And uh, Fritigern quickly pulls the Goths back and famously says that he will keep peace with walls. Uh, What he does instead is uh, has his people plunder the region around Thrace uh, for grain and meat. Uh, Again, they're still dealing with this food situation. And another thing they have to do is separate into various smaller tribes and clans in order to keep moving around the countryside and uh, getting enough food to feed everybody. Uh, This also is not just an army, right? It's weighed down with non-combatants. You've got women, you've got children, you've got old people, and all of them also need to be fed. Uh, Now, there are more Goths coming across the Danube, Because this is now a rebellion, the the new goths coming across, almost all of them are warriors, and they're ready to fight. Uh, Nonetheless, they can't remain in the field in a whole body, uh, except for very short periods of time. They can't bring enough food together logistically to do that. They have to stay split up. Uh, So uh, when the Romans are able to attack a small group of them, uh, other small groups have to band together quickly uh, for defensive purposes, then split up and run away again. This is not a winning strategy. Fredigern knows this. Uh, what he wants to do is improve his negotiating position, right? I mean, right now, if he surrenders, if the Goths surrender, they will either be enslaved or expelled back outside of the Empire, And what they really want is to live inside the empire where they're safe from these Huns and Alans and other Goths who want to kill them. Uh, So he needs to win a battle. He needs to do something to bring the Romans to the negotiating table. Now, at the same time, the Romans are not sitting idle during all of this. There aren't a ton of forces in the area, right? Most of them got killed or scattered with Lupicinus. But there are some legionaries, and the local general, a uh, guy named Sebastiani, rounds them up as best he can. He divides them into small groups to man uh, garrisons in mountain passes around this part of Thrace. He can't beat Frittigern. He doesn't have enough guys to do it, but what he can do is bottle Fritigern up in this area so he can't get out and threaten the rest of the empire. And then once that's done, Sebastiani puts out a call for more forces, more help, and receives help from none other than Gratian, the emperor in the west. And now Sebastiani is able to put together a proper field army. Uh, This army has some success uh, taking out smaller bands of Goths, right? Uh, We were talking about those Goths moving around in small groups uh, in order to stay fed. Uh, if he comes across some of them, he can kill them. But at the same time, with all these mountain passes and running all these patrols for smaller bands of Goths, the Romans are also divided. Uh, And there are some Gothic guerrilla warfare successes against uh, deliveries, uh, supplies, things of that nature. But for the most part, the Romans are getting the better of things. Uh, And this guerrilla war goes on for about a year. In 377 AD, Valens is finally able to make peace with the Persians. The Persians were also having some trouble over on the other side of their empire. So, as happens so often during this era, uh, both sides just sort of agreed to put things on hold and be at peace while they dealt with trouble in their respective empires. Uh, And Valens... Uh, musters his forces in Constantinople, right? He brings them back from Persia and then he stops at Constantinople for the winter. And in the spring of 378, he marches north up into Thrace to put the Goths down personally. In addition to Valens, there's also a second army on the way from the Western Empire. This army is under the direct command of Gratian, Valens' nephew, And unfortunately, they have to stop and put down a small tribal rebellion on their way from the Western Empire. Now, they're only delayed by a couple weeks, but they're supposed to meet up with Valen's force at Adrianople, which is a city a little ways north of Constantinople, uh, just the southern end of the region of Thrace. Now the plan is to reconnoiter the area, find out where Fritigern's forces are, what they're up to, and then come up with a plan from there. So while Valens is waiting for Gratian to show up, he sends out some scouts. What they learn is that Fritigern is not far away and only has some of his forces with him. In other words. If Valen strikes now, he might be able to put an end to this whole rebellion right here. Now, on the other hand, if he waits for Gratian to show up, he'll have twice as many troops to deal with the problem. Some advisors, including Sebastiani, suggest that he should wait. On the other hand, other advisors suggest moving on Fredegar now before he can get any more troops together. Valens decides to move immediately, and it's not clear whether he did this for strategic reasons, because he wants to get Frediger now, or if he did it for political reasons. Uh, Adrian Goldsworthy, a historian who covers this time period, uh, says that part of Valens' motivation is that he was tired of getting upstaged, Remember, Valens kind of had a chip on his shoulder, right? Uh, He came in unqualified. He always felt like he had to prove that he's up to the job. And what Goldsworthy says is that Valens decides to move right away because he wants to win the glory. Sebastiani's already won a little bit of glory right? Bottling up this rebellion, winning some minor victories. Gratians also won a little bit of glory, right? He put down his own tribal rebellion. If Valens moves now, he can say that he put down Fritigern's rebellion and he did it by himself. Whether or not this is what motivated him is not entirely clear, but it's worth taking into consideration, especially when you think about what happened afterwards. Now, before Valens and his army can move out, a messenger arrives in Adrianople, and it's from Fritigern. Moreover, the messenger is an Arian Christian priest. This is something that Fritigern and uh, Valens have in common, right, as their shared Arian Christianity. And what this messenger says uh, is that Fritigern requests the right to settle in Thrace, which, if you recall, is the right that they'd already been granted. Basically, Fritigern wants everything to go back to the way it was before. Uh, And then in private, this priest tells Valens that Fritigern means him no harm. Again, he's emphasizing, we can just go back to the way things were and live in your empire. Uh, And he actually asks for Valens' help. He asks for Valens to make a show of force and to make a big enough show of force that it will convince the other Gothic leaders to let him negotiate for peace. And we'll never know whether or not Fritigern was being sincere because Valens gave no answer to this Aryan Christian priest-messenger. Uh, he decided that this message was a sign of weakness. Fritigern wants to negotiate because he knows he can't win a battle. So the very next morning, Valens leads his troops out from Adrianople to take on Frittigern. And this is the morning of March 9, 378. Valens has a force of roughly 20,000 men, about two thirds of them are infantry. About a third are cavalry, and Fritigern's army consists of about 15,000 Tervingi. should say Goths. Most of them are Tervingi. A few of them might be Gruthengi, but most of them are Tervingi, and there's about 15,000 of them, Uh, but the, the spot where they are is eight miles outside the city of Adrianople, So, first thing in the morning, Valen's troops suit up, they get their armor on, and they start marching these eight miles. And for these troops, particularly for the infantry, right, who have to walk that distance on foot in heavy armor, uh, this is already wearing them down before they even get to the battlefield. And by the time they arrive, they already need time to breathe. And the Goths aren't going to let them breathe, literally. They're lighting small piles of brush on fire uh, to blind the Romans and to irritate them, to make them cough, dry them out. Apparently the Romans are downwind. And when the Romans can see blinking through this smoke, what they see is a giant logger, which is a circle of wagons on the top of a hill. Now, I said before that the Goths' numbers, when we talk about them moving around Thrace, they were they were bloated by non combatants who they were traveling with. Well this group was all combatants. These were fifteen thousand warriors, and they had made these wagons into a makeshift fort. It was a actually a pretty strong defensive position and the Romans needed time to deploy. Uh, The way the army marched uh, was with the infantry in front and then heavy cavalry uh, to either side with light cavalry outside of that. And the idea is that the cavalry uh, will screen the infantry. So as the infantry sort of leads the cavalry forward Uh, The cavalry is watching the flanks to make sure that nothing is coming in to hit that infantry from the side. Uh, But this kind of deployment does take time. This is heavy infantry. Again, they're tired, and Valens would like his troops to rest. So when Fritigern sends a peace envoy, Valens, rather than accepting them, sends them back. He tells them that they're not high enough ranking for him to negotiate with. And what he's doing is stalling for time so that all of his men can get into position and just have a minute to breathe before the actual fighting starts. What Valens doesn't know is that there are 15,000 more Goths coming. These Goths are cavalry under the command of a couple of chiefs named Alatheus and Siphax, and they're going to be arriving any minute. Well, Fritigern does know this. It's why he sent those emissaries in the first place, supposedly. So he's more than happy to play this game, and he sends one of his own relatives back to Valens and asks for a hostage in return. And in exchange, Fritigern offers the Romans food and water. He's saying, Hey, look, I know your guys are tired. Let's exchange hostages. Let's sit down. Let's talk this out. And one of Valen's companions, uh, a general named Ricamir, who was from the Western Empire originally, he agreed to go. Uh, and as Ricamir is on his way to the Gothic line, he's being escorted by some Iberian archers. And for some reason that's not entirely clear, these archers break discipline and uh, fire a volley of arrows at the Goths, and then turn and run. Uh, Again, no idea why they did that, but that volley of arrows kicked off general fighting up and down both lines. And to be fair to the Romans, they actually did pretty well considering the circumstances. Again, keep in mind they did not have time to finish deploying. So the flanking cavalry is still sort of behind the infantry. It's not forward. It's not in position to charge and flank the enemy. And uh, that center infantry does very well at first. They reach the Gothic wagons. They start pushing the Goths back into the wagons. But their cavalry because it's out of position, is not able to come in and support them and pursue the Goths, and the Goths, the, the Tervingi inside the wagon lager are able to reform and push back, and then at that moment, the cavalry under Alatheus and siphax arrives, and when the Gothic cavalry arrives, it immediately engages with the Roman cavalry, And the Romans, again, caught completely out of position, are just blown away on the flanks. Those cavalry have no chance, and those who are not killed are driven from the field. Uh, At this point, the Gothic cavalry closes in on both sides of the Roman infantry, and what you have is a classic double envelopment. And here's how the contemporary Roman historian Ammianus describes what happened on that battlefield. He says, But when the barbarians, rushing on with their enormous host, beat down our horses and men, and left no spot to which our ranks could fall back to deploy... While they were so closely packed that it was impossible to escape by forcing a way through them, our men at last began to despise death, and again took to their swords and slew all they encountered, while with mutual blows of battle-axes, helmets, and breastplates were dashed in pieces. Then you might see the barbarian towering in his fierceness, hissing or shouting, falling with his legs pierced through or right hand cut off, sword and all or his side transfixed and still, in the last gasp of life, casting round him defiant glances. The plain was covered with carcasses, strewing the mutual ruin of the combatants, while the groans of the dying or of men fearfully wounded were intense and caused great dismay all round. Amidst all this great tumult and confusion, our infantry were exhausted by toil and danger, till at last they had neither strength left to fight nor spirits to plan anything. Their spears were broken by the frequent collisions, so that they were forced to content themselves with their drawn swords, which they thrust into the dense battalions of the enemy, disregarding their own safety and seeing that every possibility of escape was cut off from them. The ground, covered with streams of blood, made their feet slip, so that all that they endeavored to do was to sell their lives as dearly as possible, and with such vehemence did they resist their enemies who pressed on them, that some were even killed by their own weapons. At last one black pool of blood disfigured everything, and wherever the eye turned, it could see nothing but piled up heaps of dead and lifeless corpses trampled on without mercy. The sun being now high in the heavens, having traversed the sign of Leo, and reached the abode of the heavenly Virgo, scorched the Romans, who were emaciated by hunger, worn out with toil, and scarcely able to support even the weight of their armor. At last our columns were entirely beaten back by the overpowering weight of the barbarians, and so they took to disorderly flight, which is the only resource in extremity, each man trying to save himself as well as he could. While they were all flying and scattering themselves over roads with which they were unacquainted, the emperor, bewildered with terrible fear, made his way over heaps of dead and fled to the battalions of the Lanciari and the Matiari, who, until the superior numbers of the enemy became wholly irresistible, stood firm and immovable. As soon as he saw him, Trajan exclaimed that all hope was lost, unless the Emperor, thus deserted by his guards, could be protected by the aid of his foreign allies. And there, Ammianus says, with these foreign auxiliary troops, the Emperor Valens died anonymously as an infantryman. Ammianus also recounts another story. And in this version of the story, the emperor was merely wounded and evacuated from the field, and his bodyguards took him to a peasant's hunt to tend his wounds. And while he there, some Goths who were pursuing the defeated Romans lit fire to the hut and burned it down. And one of the emperor's bodyguards escaped from an upstairs window and was captured and then told the Goths that they had burned the Emperor to death. And the Goths were upset because they had wanted to capture him. And whichever version of the story is true doesn't really matter. Either way, the Romans were defeated. Either way, the Emperor Valens is dead along with 15,000 Roman soldiers and most of their top leadership. Uh, We don't know the Gothic losses. Uh, They were probably negligible. Usually in ancient warfare, in this type of battle, uh, when one army is surrounded, the army that is doing the surrounding doesn't typically take a lot of casualties. And along with all those troops, the Romans also lost a legionary eagle, the emblem of that legion. This battle, the Battle of Adrianople, is one of only 16 battles where the Romans ever lost a legionary eagle. And it would be the last time. And as with all the other lost legionary eagles, its fate is unknown. And this battle is often considered the beginning of the collapse of the Western Empire. You might protest, what do you mean? The Battle of Adrianople happened in the eastern half of the Empire, yes. But then again, the Zhang knew were defeated by the Chinese 300 years earlier. And yet, if some historians are to be believed, here they are in the 400s, attacking the Goths in the Caucasus. And in a similar type of ripple effect, this Roman loss at Adrianople would not be the end of the Eastern Empire, but of the West instead. So Valens is dead, and this leaves his military commander, a man named Julian, in charge of the Eastern Empire. And the first thing Julian does is he decides that there need to be fewer Goths. There are too many, uh, they are not manageable, and he uses a variety of tricks to lure A bunch of Goths together near the Danube and massacres all of them. Uh, Predictably, this leads other Goths in the region to riot. Entire Roman settlements are massacred in reprisal. Uh, But for the most part, there is no resolution. Uh, The Goths inside the empire still operate as separate tribes with their own chiefs. Uh, Fritigern is only able to bring them together occasionally. He tries to sack Constantinople. Once again, he can't deal with walls, still needs leverage to negotiate with the Romans. And what this situation leads to is just three years of nonstop low-level guerrilla fighting. There are no major battles, No large Roman force encounters a large Gothic force in the field. Uh, It's all very, very low level. And while this is going on, uh, Gratian, in the year 378, appoints a man named Theodosius as emperor. And it is Theodosius who will be responsible for bringing an end to Fritigern's Gothic rebellion. Now, Theodosius had been born into the aristocracy in the Western Empire, and had actually served as a military governor before his father was executed for an unknown offense. At that time, Theodosius semi-retired to Galicia, which is in northern modern-day Portugal, and it seems like he retired to save face. His father had done something that got him executed, and Theodosius quietly left public life. So we don't know why Gratian decided to appoint this semi-retired former governor. One thing that does stand out about Theodosius is that he was a Nicene Christian, and so was Gratian. Uh, Both of them were ardently opposed to paganism, and both of them also were opposed to Arianism. So it could be that, yet again in our story, a shared religious faith is bringing two people together. Uh, But for whatever reason, Theodosius, this semi-retired former governor, suddenly found himself emperor of the east and he had to make his way all the way over there and just to get into the city of Constantinople just to maneuver around Fritigern's rebels took two years so that goes to show you the level of intensity of guerrilla warfare that was going on in that part of the empire at the time um at that point, fate intervened in the form of an elderly Goth chieftain named Athanaric. Now, Athanaric was actually a rival of Fritigerns. From way back in the day when Fritigern had lived up north of the Danube with the rest of the other Goths, they had fought. Uh, and it seems like Athanaric had bested him at some point. Uh, Athanaric was a pagan, not a Christian. And when some of his people nonetheless decided to cross the Danube to join Fritigern, he had sworn an oath never to enter the Roman Empire. But he was starting to get a little bit older and Theodosius invited him to visit Constantinople and surprisingly, Athanaric accepted. Violating his oath never to re-enter the empire, he came to visit Constantinople and was impressed by the city's architecture and culture, and uh, he and several other allied chiefs of his ultimately ended up staying for a few months. While he was there, Athanaric died of natural causes, and Theodosius took the opportunity to give him a state funeral with full honors. Uh, what this showed Athanaric’s chiefs was that Theodosius did not see him as just some barbarian, but as a fellow leader worthy of respect. And in response, Athanach’s uh, surviving allied chieftains agreed to help Theodosius by defending the borders of the empire north of the Danube. This was helpful number one, because it helped to shore up the border. It kept more Goths from coming into the empire. But number two, it showed Fritigern's fellow chiefs that Theodosius was not this guy valens with a chip on his shoulder. Theodosius was a reasonable guy and he was willing to deal with them reasonably. Uh, Ultimately, Fritigern's fellow chiefs came to the table and they signed a peace treaty with Theodosius in the year 382. Uh, Within this treaty... Uh, The Goths were ultimately settled in Thrace, just as they had been under their original treaty with Valens. And the rest of the terms were also pretty much the same, with one major exception, and that is that the Goths were to convert to Nicene Christianity, uh, not Arianism. And you might wonder why Fritigern, this ardent Arian Christian, would be okay with this, But at this point, Fritigern just conveniently disappears from history, which makes you wonder what ended up happening to him. Was he made to disappear as part of the deal? Did the Romans want revenge for Adrianople? So they said, hey, you guys can settle here in the empire, but this guy Fritigern's got to go. Or... Did the Gothic chiefs preemptively get rid of Fritigern? Maybe they were tired of running around out in the wilderness and decided that if they got rid of Fritigern themselves and came to Theodosius, that he would let them settle in the empire. We're not really sure. All we know is that Fritigern is gone and that Theodosius has done what Valens could not and peacefully resettled the Goths within the empire. Now, this was not entirely without its hiccups, right? Uh, For one thing, as I mentioned, the young Goths were expected to serve in the army. But in another break with precedent, rather than serving in a dispersed fashion in other units, they served mostly in dedicated Gothic units within that province. And again, this is a big deal, right? Because you didn't have that Roman officer corps tradition that went back for centuries, right? All of a sudden you have these units that may as well be uh, uh, tribal auxiliaries, but they're technically legions. And once in a while, this did lead to friction. Uh, In 390, in the city of Thessalonica the commander of the city's gothic garrison had to arrest a famous charioteer. At that time in the eastern part of the empire, charioteers were like rock stars. Uh, You think about the level of fame that a soccer star has in Europe or a football player has in the United States. And that's kind of what you're dealing with here. A major celebrity and much like modern soccer teams today have hooligans and gangs associated with them. You had hooligans and gangs associated with these charioteers in the Greek speaking part of the empire. And uh, when this Gothic garrison commander arrests the charioteer, a mob ends up lynching him, uh, Theodosius orders a reprisal, and we're not sure what his orders were. Uh, It seems that maybe the new garrison commander got a little bit over-enthusiastic. We can't be sure. But what we do know is that the city's garrison gathered on a specific time, on a specific day, and slaughtered more than 7,000 people. And for this massacre, the Emperor Theodosius was held responsible. Uh, The Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose, excommunicated him uh, in response to the massacre. And Ambrose would only readmit the Emperor uh, to the church after committing several months of public penance. But despite this public humiliation... Theodosius was nonetheless a highly successful emperor. Meanwhile, in the western half of the empire, Gratian had died in 383, leaving the emperorship to his younger brother Valentinian II. But Valentinian II died unexpectedly in 392 without leaving an heir. Rather than appoint another co-emperor, Theodosius simply became emperor in the west himself, reuniting the empire for the first time since Jovian died, kicking off all of this madness. Now, Theodosius did not have a quiet reign. As a matter of fact, he had to put down several pretenders, both in the eastern half of the empire and in the western half. So he spent most of his time on the road fighting with his troops. In the last years of his reign, he faced a revolt- from a general named Eugenius, and during his campaign against Eugenius, Theodosius made use of the services of a young Goth named Alaric, who led Gothic troops into battle on Theodosius's behalf on more than one occasion. In 394, Eugenius was defeated, and Theodosius was able to enjoy four short months of peace before dying in the spring of 395. Nobody knew it at the time, but Theodosius would be the last person to rule a united Roman empire. Upon his death, he left the emperorship to both of his sons. One son, Honorius, was to rule in the west, while Arcadius was to rule in the east. Again, like we talked about already, this was nothing unusual in and of itself. It was fairly normal for the empire to be divided in this fashion. So no one had any reason to think that Theodosius would be the last man to be emperor of both East and West. But he was. In addition to that legacy, he also left a legacy of Nicene Christianity rather than Arianism. Before his death, he ultimately partnered with St. Ambrose to fire all the Arian bishops in the empire, as well as removing state recognition from Arian churches. It was around this same time that St. Ambrose coined the term Catholic Christian, a term that would refer to all Nicene Christians for almost 600 years. Now, at this point, we should stop and ask ourselves why Theodosius was the last Roman emperor. The obvious answer is that both of his sons were almost uniquely weak and incompetent. It would be hard to choose two worse people to be in charge of the two halves of the empire at this time. But the problems run a little bit deeper than that, and it has to do with how the empire itself was being run. Now, more or less since the beginning of the crisis of the 3rd century, the Roman Empire has functioned as a military dictatorship. This doesn't necessarily mean that emperors have to come from the military. As we've seen, there have been some civil servants who have become emperor. Theodosius was one of them. But an emperor could not rule without the backing of the military. And for most people, that meant leading in the field, right? You think of Roman emperors from Julius Caesar to Constantine the Great, And they're always out there in the field with their army. Even Theodosius was always out there in the field with his army. And what you see after Theodosius is a shift where emperors are no longer leading in the field. What this means is that they no longer had the respect of the troops. Now, this worked in different ways in the East and the West. In the West... From here on out, for the most part, the emperors were puppets of whatever field commanders had the loyalty of troops on the ground. There is one exception, Majorian. We'll talk about him later. But other than that, the rest of the Western emperors were basically puppets. That's it. In the East, emperors could rely on a in this case, literally Byzantine bureaucracy to keep field commanders in check. But even so, from time to time, you will see Byzantine leaders overthrown by powerful generals. Uh, And over the centuries, the Eastern emperors will rely more and more on mercenaries rather than homegrown troops. Uh, This was only somewhat effective because they couldn't develop a cohesive doctrine. That's a problem you have when you're dealing with mercenaries, right? They're not all trained together, so they don't all fight the same way. Uh, You may have archers from one side of the empire and spearmen from another area, and you've got to make everything click. And that did lead to some issues later on in the Eastern Empire. But at least for the most part, it worked out well for the emperors. Not so much so in the West, where they essentially got used and abused and thrown out when their generals were done with them. And the reason this is important is because both of Theodosius' sons, Honorius and Arcadius, are too young to rule right now. They have to have someone rule for them. And in Arcadius's case in the east, it's a general named Rufinus. And in Honorius's case in the west, it's a general named Stilicho. And Rufinus and Stilicho cannot stand each other. They will spend the entire time they're both in charge trying to undermine each other in their respective halves of the empire. And this marks the end of the time where either half of the empire could reliably depend on the other half, right? Remember, even in the past when there were two, three, four emperors at once, when there was a foreign threat, the different parts of the empire would coordinate a response. And under Honorius and Arcadius, or if you prefer, under Stilicho and Rufinus, these generals pulling the puppet strings, uh, you did not have that coordinated response. They they were fighting against each other as much as they would fight against an outside threat. For now, we'll be ignoring Arcadius. We'll let him stew over in the Eastern Empire, and we'll focus on Stilicho, because he's an interesting character and more to the point, he is responsible for leading the Western Roman Empire through this pivotal period. Now, Stilicho is the son of a Vandal cavalry officer and a provincial Roman woman. This means he's only half Roman by birth. Now, from what we can tell, he always considered himself fully Roman. After all, his father was serving as a cavalry officer for Rome, even though he himself was a Vandal. And Stilicho was also a Nicene Christian. He was not an Arian Christian. Most of these Germanic peoples, if they were Christians, they were Arians, right? But Stilicho had taken his mother's faith. And as he rose through the ranks of the army, he came to the attention of Theodosius, And this is another one of those scenarios where you have to ask yourself how much someone's religion, right, in this case, Nicene Christianity, as opposed to Arian Christianity, put them in a position where they were uh, historically pivotal. And in this case, uh, Theodosius notices Stilicho and sends him to negotiate a peace treaty with the Persians, which he does successfully. Uh, Stilicho is then raised to the position of Tribunus Sacristabuli, which literally means Tribune of the Sacred Stables, and the job is what it sounds like. He's responsible for getting horses together for the army. Again, this is an appropriate job, right? He is a cavalry officer, and after proving himself as the head of all the cavalry in the army, Theodosius then makes him comes Domesticorum, which basically means his chief of staff. So, this means that Stilicho did not just have military experience, he also had political experience. He had worked in the court of the Eastern Empire and then later in the West uh, when Theodosius took over there as well. Um, and in 393, Stilicho became Comes et Magister Utriusque Militiae, which is basically the top general of the empire. And in 394, he was responsible for putting together the field army that put down that pretender, Eugenius, right? That guy who was challenging Theodosius for the Empire ship. He did this administratively. Stilicho was not in the field in 394. But for the next several years, he was going to constantly butt heads with one of the men who was in the field that day, and that was a young Gothic leader named Alaric. Now, I mentioned Alaric briefly earlier, right? He was at that battle where Eugenius was defeated, the Battle of Phrygidus. And he had served there in part because Theodosius had promised to make him a Roman general, not just a leader of auxiliary forces, but a true general within the Roman Legion. This was a lifelong dream of Alarix. He'd grown up outside the empire, north of the Danube, and he was between three and eight years old at the Battle of Adrianople. In other words, he remembered life outside the empire, and then he spent his teenage years surrounded by war veterans and he wanted to serve in the Roman army, and he never got the opportunity to. He was always leading these Gothic troops. When Theodosius died, he lost his opportunity. So even as Stilicho was taking the reins for the young Emperor Honorius, even as Stilicho is trying to put together some kind of administration, Alaric is dejectedly leading his army back to Thrace, And as he's passing through the Balkans, he decides to stop and do a little pillaging along the way. Now, this is technically in the Eastern Empire's sphere of influence, but the Eastern Army is off fighting the Huns in Asia Minor. Again, the White Walkers are coming. They're right there on the horizon. You see them? They're fighting the Eastern Empire. They're going to be in the West soon, but not yet. And meanwhile, Alaric is pillaging the Balkans. So, Stilicho does what a leader should do, and takes his army into the Eastern Empire to take care of the problem. Now, he corrals Alaric and his Goths in a valley. He's ready to defeat them. And Arcadius's Praetorian Prefect, a man named Rufinus, orders Stilicho to return to the West. Now, Many historians think that Rufinus was not actually working for Arcadius. Right, Arcadius, the puppet master of the Eastern Empire, Rufinus's boss. A lot of historians think Rufinus was actually working with Alaric and the Goths to begin with. Um, ultimately, Rufinus would be assassinated. And many historians and many people at the time attribute that plot to Stilicho. Now, the next 11 years would be more or less constant warfare. Stilicho would have to fight off a Frankish invasion of Gaul, a Pictish invasion of Britain. The Picts are a Scottish tribe. Uh, And he would also have to put down a rebellion in North Africa. And while he was dealing with all of this, he would keep having to fight Alaric. In 936, Stilicho had to invade Greece to stop Alaric from raiding. Now, once again, that's in the eastern half of the empire. That's not Stilicho's jurisdiction, and Arcadius's officials come down hard on him. They kick him out once again, and to rub salt in the wound, they give Alaric a military position. Essentially, what Arcadius is doing is using Alaric and his Goths as a proxy to fight a cold war with Stilicho in the Western Empire. This is what the historian Procopius has to say about Alaric's Goths, who were starting to call themselves Visigoths. He says, Under the leadership of Alaric, they became hostile to both emperors, and beginning with Thrace, treated all Europe as an enemy's land. In other words, this constant warfare was doing the exact opposite of what you want to do when you're integrating a new barbarian people into your empire. What you want to do is disperse them throughout the land and let them assimilate to Roman culture. And instead, what you're doing is you're constantly making them something separate from Roman culture, right? They're fighting in the wars, but they're fighting as Goths. They're living in the empire, but they're living as Goths. This gothic identity is constantly being reinforced. So it should come as no surprise that the goths acted like Procopius says they were feeling, right? As if all of Europe was an enemy's land. And in 401, Alaric invaded Italy with an army of goths. Stilicho defeated him twice in two major battles and drove him back. At the second battle, he actually captured Alaric's wife. And when Stilicho returned to Rome, a parade was held in his honor. And this was a special type of parade. It was called a triumph, and it was a parade that was only thrown For generals who were victorious in a great battle, not just any battle, it had to be significant. Men had started wars in order to have a triumph held in their honor, and Stilicho received one. And this triumph, held in 401 AD, would be the last ever held in the Roman Empire. In 401, in response partially to this, Attempted invasion, the court of the Western Empire was moved from Milan to the city of Ravenna. Uh, This was done because Ravenna is located in a swampy area. It's virtually impossible to attack with a large army. It's an excellent defensive position, but this shows you again the continued decline of this Western Roman Empire which goes from having its capital in Rome, the Eternal City, to Milan for commercial reasons, to now moving to swampy Ravenna just to stay safe from the barbarian hordes. And in the year 406, Stilicho pushes his luck a little too far. He's figured out how to kill two birds with one stone. See, there's a province called Illyricum, which is Located roughly where modern-day Croatia is. And uh, this province had traditionally been part of the Western Empire, but had been moved to the jurisdiction of the East during uh, Fritigern's initial rebellion just for administrative reasons, to make it easier to raise troops and supply them. And uh, unfortunately, from that time on, that region had then remained heart of the Eastern Empire. And Stilicho wanted it back. He also wanted to stop fighting with Alaric every few years. So he conspired with Alaric to have Alaric help the Western Empire to seize Illyricum by force. All right, this would have been a civil war, East versus West. And once Illyricum was seized, Stilicho would name Alaric Comes et magister militium pour Illyricum, basically military governor of this new province, which Alaric would then hold for Stilicho. So the West would get Illyricum back, Alaric would get to be a general in a Roman legion, and as a matter of fact, even a military governor, everybody wins, right? So Stilicho sends a demand to Arcadius to return to Illyricum to the West, fully expecting him to refuse, and While he's waiting for that response, a bunch of Germanic tribes suddenly attack Gaul. The Romans do have allies there. There are some Frankish tribes on the outside of the Rhine, one of these buffer states, so to speak, for lack of a better term. Uh, And these Franks fight the Germans. Uh, They inflict some losses, but they're defeated. And then the Germanic tribes cross the Rhine and droves, and pillage freely across Gaul, which is now more or less undefended. And to make things worse, while this is going on, a Roman general, calling himself Constantine III, launches his own rebellion in Britannia and invades Gaul across the English Channel. So now Stilicho has to do an about-face, forget about Illyricum, and move his armies back west to deal with both the Germanic invasion and the rebellion. Now, you might think that Alaric would sit back and wait for things to resolve so they could move forward with their plans to seize Illyricum, but Alaric was not that kind of guy. Instead, he sent a message to Stilicho saying that If the Romans didn't pay some protection money, he was going to take the opportunity to invade again. Stilicho talked the Senate into authorizing the funds, but they were not pleased about it. And eventually, his unsuccessful attempts to deal with Constantine, as well as rumors that he had planned the assassination of Rufinus, remember that, and rumors that he planned to place his own son on the throne of the Eastern Empire, all of this caused a revolt. And this wasn't just a general revolt, it was a revolt in the army. Stilicho was staying in the city of Pavia, northwestern Italy, where he could coordinate the war in Gaul. And he had to run. And he ran all the way back across Italy to Ravenna, where he was promptly arrested, tried, and executed on August twenty second, four 408. And soon after, his son was also executed. This left Honorius as the undisputed, real leader of the Western Empire. He's 23 years old, old enough to rule, but he lacks actual experience. Remember, Stilicho has been doing everything for him. And there are rumors that Honorius was responsible for what happened to Stilicho. Certainly would make sense right? If not Honorius, then someone loyal to him. Or anyone who was just tired of Stilicho and would rather have Honorius, this young, pliable man in charge, will never really know who orchestrated it. But what we do know is that Stilicho's death caused chaos in the Roman countryside, particularly in northern Italy. Uh, The reason being that many of his supporters were barbarians who were also Roman citizens. Right again, Rome being an empire that had existed for centuries, many of the people in the empire were of barbarian descent and various emperors over the years made various groups of barbarians into citizens. There were a lot of them there and thousands of them were killed. And riots. And as a result, over 30,000 barbarians fled to Alaric. Now, these are not necessarily Goths, right? These are just barbarians who live in the empire. They may have been there for 10, 15 generations. It doesn't matter All of this mass rioting is causing them to run to the one place in the empire where barbarians are currently safe. Alaric, meanwhile, is terribly upset. Now now with Stilicho dead, he's once again failed to become a Roman general, his dream. Uh, He has no route to do that. So he goes back to what he did before and demands that Honorius pay a very large ransom as well as return a bunch of hostages from the last war. And Honorius refuses. And it's tough to say what Honorius is thinking here. His, His legions are off in Gaul. They're fighting Constantine III and the Germanic tribes. They can't help with Alaric. Any any barbarian forces he might have raised with Stilicho's help? Well, they're with Alaric now. And making good on his threat, Alaric crosses the Alps from modern-day Austria into Italy with 30,000 men. And in September 408, reaches the city of Rome. He doesn't bother with Ravenna. Ravenna's in a swamp, and more importantly, there's nothing to loot there. Now, he goes for the big prize. He puts Rome under siege. And immediately realizing that he actually has no way to stop Alaric from taking Rome if he wants to, Honorius agrees to pay a ransom. He pays 5,000 pounds of gold, 30,000 pounds of silver, 4,000 silken tunics, 3,000 hides of dyed scarlet, and 3,000 pounds of pepper. He also released 40,000 Gothic slaves. Now, that's a lot of numbers, but I like to just play with these things and say, can, can you picture 3,000 pounds of pepper? Right, how many wagon loads is that? Right? What, what about these tunics, 4,000 silken tunics? How much does that cost? In Roman times, right? That silk, that came all the way from China. This is an incredible amount of wealth, and it's being transferred in an instant. And what's more, Honorius has also promised to make Alaric a Roman general. Upon receiving his ransom, Alaric is good to his word and leaves without harming the city of Rome. But Honorius has not learned his lesson, and again, we're not sure why, he reneges on his promise to make Alaric a general. So, once again, a year later in 409 AD, Alaric comes back across the Alps from modern-day Austria and surrounds the city of Rome. This time, he's not going to try and deal with Honorius directly. Instead, he's just going to try and appropriate the empire. He finds himself a willing senator, a man named Attalus, and declares Attalus the new emperor. Unfortunately for Alaric, Attalus is not the sharpest pencil in the box. He doesn't realize that he's a puppet, and he decides to flex his muscle. So he sends a handful of military commanders to invade North Africa, right? To take the supplies and make sure that Honorius won't be getting any of that. But Attalus does not consult with Alaric before doing this. So a few military commanders is all he's able to send. He's not able to send any troops. So the grain shipments arrive from North Africa to Honorius, as per usual. And then Attalus is furious. He's upset that these grain shipments have gone through, so he decides to attack Ravenna directly. And again, he, he doesn't tell Alaric. He just tries to order the army, Alaric's gothic army, to attack Ravenna without saying a word to Alaric. So Alaric realizes his mistake, has Attalus deposed, and puts him under house arrest. And the next year, in 410 AD, with Rome still under siege, right? Now it's been under siege for almost a year now. Alaric goes to Ravenna to negotiate directly with Honorius. And at this point, it looks like things are starting to turn around. Honorius is starting to give ground, and it's likely that Had everything gone well, he would have given Alaric a generalship. But fate intervened again, this time in the form of a Gothic chief named Sarus. Now, Sarus was an old rival of Alaric's, and while Alaric was busy negotiating with Honorius, Sarus thought it would be a good opportunity to attack Alaric's army. Alaric's men are able to drive off Sarus's, but Alaric thinks that Honorius is behind this, that it's some kind of treachery. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because Ceres had been loyal to Stilicho. He probably couldn't stand Honorius, right? Given the history there, with Honorius probably having Stilicho killed, it's more likely that Ceres couldn't stand to be in the room with Honorius. But Alaric got it into his head that Honorius and Ceres had plotted to get him killed, So he returns to the siege of Rome, and even as Rome itself is under siege, the outer parts of the empire are starting to come apart. Several British communities who had minimal local defenses and were facing barbarian invasion, right? That Pictish invasion from Scotland still going on. And these British communities send an appeal to Honorius for help. And there's nothing he can do. Rome is under siege. He's dealing with a rebellion and an invasion in Gaul. There's no way he can deal with another invasion in Britain. So he sends a reply. And this reply is famous. It's called the Rescript of Honorius. And what Honorius says is basically, you guys are going to have to look after yourselves. The Legion is not coming. You're on your own. Now, this was intended only for public officials, and it was meant to be temporary, right? Once Honorius controlled Rome again, once the Legions had pushed the Germans back across the Rhine, then he could send legions over to Britain to help. But many officials took this to be a permanent statement. In some places, the public also got a hold of the rescript, caused a lot of panic. And the fall of Roman Britain and the city of Rome happened almost simultaneously. Now, at this point, as I said, the city has been under siege for over a year. There's no food left. there's hardly any leather left to eat, uh, According to some sources. People are even resorting to cannibalism um That is how desperate things have gotten in the city. And when Alaric returns to Rome from Ravenna, he sends emissaries to the Roman Senate with offers of peace. And along with the emissaries, he sends some gifts. And some of these gifts are some young slave boys. Even as he does that, he orders his army to prepare to move out, to break off the siege he makes sure the Romans see this and that Roman scouts hear him giving the orders. And that night, the Goths quietly don their armor and grab their swords and wait outside the Salarian Gate, which is one of the entrances to the city of Rome. And as it turns out, those young slave boys Alaric had given to the Senate were spies And the historian Procopius writes, And all the youths at the time of the day agreed upon came to this gate, and, assailing the guards suddenly, put them to death. Then they opened the gates, and received Alaric and the army into the city at their leisure, and they set fire to the houses which were next to the gate among which was also the house of Sallust, who in ancient times wrote the history of the Romans, and the greater part of this house has stood half burned up to my time. And after plundering the whole city and destroying the most of the Romans, they moved on. But some say that Rome was not captured in this way by Alaric, but that Proba, a woman of very unusual eminence and wealth and fame among the Roman senatorial class, felt pity for the Romans, who were being destroyed by hunger and other suffering they endured. For they were already even tasting each other's flesh. And seeing that every good hope had left them, since both the river and the harbor were held by the enemy, she commanded her domestics, they say, to open the gates by night. In other words, this wealthy socialite woman supposedly opened the gates as a matter of mercy, politics be damned, the people are starving, they're eating each other, this needs to stop. Now, which one of these stories is true? Did Alaric trick the Senate with a bunch of slaves who were spies? Did a wealthy Roman woman open the gate? We'll never know. But what we do know is that the Goths did enter through this Alarion gate, and that they sacked the city of Rome for three days. You might be picturing something horribly violent, and it was. There was burning, there was raping, there was pillaging, there was murder. But there was less of those things than there had been in most of the ancient world. This sack was unique at the time, because it was a Christian army sacking a Christian city, and it was the first time that had happened. And during the sack, you see bizarre images of mercy. You see Alaric ordering his men not to bother people who sought sanctuary in churches. You see Goths respecting the vows of chastity taken by nuns. And as bad as it was for so many people, the sack of Rome in 410 AD marks a turning point from ancient pillaging to the more quote-unquote civilized pillaging you see in the Middle Ages. There are rules... And this was not a major strategic setback for the Roman Empire, right? The capital was in Ravenna. The largest trading city in the Western Empire was in Milan. The actual city of Rome had lessened in actual practical importance. But in a moral sense, the sack of Rome was huge, right? Rome had not been captured by a foreign enemy for 800 years, right since Brennus and the Gauls sacked the city in 390 BC. This invincible empire, all of a sudden, was vulnerable. And if it's tough for us modern folks living in a different world to understand just How earth-shattering this was! Saint Jerome, who was living in Bethlehem at the time, had this to say. Nations innumerable and most savage have invaded all Gaul. The whole region between the Alps and the Pyrenees, the ocean and the Rhine, has been devastated by the Quadi, the Vandals, the Sarmati, the Alani. The Gepidae, the hostile Heruli, the Saxons, the Burgundians, the Alamanni, and the Pannonians. o wretched empire! Mayence, which is Maine's Germany, formerly so noble a city, has been taken and ruined. And in the church, many thousands of men have been massacred. Worms has been destroyed after a long siege. Reims, that powerful city... Amiens, Arras, Speyer, Strasbourg, all have seen their citizens led away captive into Germany. Aquitaine and the provinces of Lyon and Narbonne, all save a few towns, have been depopulated. and these the sword threatens without, while hunger ravages within. I cannot speak without tears of Toulouse, which the merits of the holy bishop Exuperius have prevailed so far to save from destruction." Spain, even, is in daily terror lest it perish, remembering the invasion of the Cimbri, and whatsoever the other provinces have suffered once, they continue to suffer in their fear. I will keep silence concerning the rest, lest I seem to despair of the mercy of God. For a long time, from the Black Sea to the Julian Alps, those things which are ours have not been ours, and for thirty years, since the Danube boundary was broken, war has been waged in the very midst of the Roman Empire. Our tears are dried by old age. Except a few old men, all were born in captivity and siege, and do not desire the liberty they never knew. Who could believe this? How could the whole tale be worthily told? How Rome has fought within her own bosom not for glory but for preservation? Nay, How she has not even fought but with gold and all her precious things has ransomed her life who could believe that rome built upon the conquest of the whole world would fall to the ground that the mother herself would become the tomb of her peoples that all the regions of the east of africa and egypt once ruled by the queenly city would be filled with troops of slaves and handmaidens That today holy Bethlehem should shelter men and women of noble birth who once abounded in wealth and are now beggars. And the sack of Rome was not just disastrous for the empire or the people who lived there. It was also disastrous for Alaric. He'd wanted to be a general in the legendary Roman legion and he'd ended up sacking Rome, destroying that veneer of invincibility that had covered the eternal city. Alaric spent the better part of a year trying to get better terms from the Romans. But by the end of that time, he'd grown ill and died, never having made peace. And During all of these distractions and disasters, the Picts and other tribes have taken over Britannia which will never again be returned to Roman rule. And the Emperor Honorius is, to put it charitably, less than active during the rest of his reign. And Procopius, the historian who's clearly no fan of his, writes a story of how he responded to hearing the news of Rome being sacked. And Procopius says, At that time, they say that the Emperor Honorius and Ravenna received the message from one of the eunuchs, evidently a keeper of the poultry, that Rome had perished. And he cried out and said, And yet it has just eaten from my hands. For he had a very large cock, Rome by name, and the eunuch, comprehending his words, said that it was the city of Rome which had perished at the hands of Alaric. And the emperor, with a sigh of relief, answered quickly, But I thought that my foul Rome had perished. So great, they say, was the folly with which this emperor was possessed. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that, in terms of poor leadership. And we don't know if that particular story is true or if it's just illustrative. But either way, that's not the guy you want in charge, while your empire is collapsing. Now, Honorius does manage to do one thing well, and that is he finds himself a competent general named Constantius. Constantius came to fame by putting down the rebellion by Constantine Third, thus eliminating the last major challenge to Honorius' rule. For the next eight years, he would work alongside Honorius to build a more prosperous and more cohesive Western Empire. He put down revolts by various barbarian tribes and generally kept the peace. For once in our story, the Western Empire was whole. In 417, Constantius and Honorius decide to cement their alliance, and Constantius marries Honorius's half sister, Galla Placidia. With Galla Placidia, Constantius has two children, Honoria and Valentinian III, who would one day be an emperor. Now, by 418, Constantius has more or less put together the Western Empire. The Rhine frontier is restored, and the Germans are on the other side. However, he's had to do all this with a lot of help from barbarian tribes, and this has meant giving away land. Not in the the old-school, distribute-the-barbarians-all-throughout-the-Empire way that things had been done for centuries. All of these barbarians wanted the same deal that the Goths had gotten, and they got it. In the year 418, The Burgundians were living on the Rhine, the Visigoths owned most of Western Gaul, the Alans owned much of central Hispania, the Suevian Vandals owned much of northwestern Hispania, and even more Vandals were in southern Hispania. In other words, like, the whole western half of the Western Empire was basically a bunch of barbarian kingdoms. This was totally unprecedented and it would ultimately lead to the collapse of the empire and the rise of a bunch of new, independent kingdoms. In February of 321, Honorius appointed Constantius officially as his co-emperor. In theory, this could have led to a period of even more stable rule, but Constantius died in September of that very same year and Honorius apparently started to become unhinged. In his later years, it's said that he became physically attracted to his sister, Galla Placidia. That's Constantius' wife. And Galla Placidia had to flee to Constantinople with her children, Honoria and Valentinian III. So now... Rome is left with a weak, elderly emperor with no heir. It's lost Britain. It's lost most of Hispania. It's lost parts of Gaul. All of these tribal kingdoms are appearing, and the White Walkers are still on the way. How did all these independent kingdoms come to be? Why did they break out of the empire when no one else did for 800 years? We'll talk about that in the next episode, part two of Ex Unum Pluribus.